I know we asked that question already, but I don't have I don't have any other opening lines. Um, something interesting happened a couple of weeks ago. You know how I got a red light violation ticket uh, last November, right? And then after that, uh, I asked around some experts in getting tickets on how to uh, get out of paying the fine. So, <clears throat> and I got some tips, you know, the proper uh, dress, you know, how to carry myself, what to say, what not to say, in the hope that, you know, I can uh, eliminate that $480 nasty fine. So I was in the court uh, on Monday, and um, you know, it was my first time to a uh, traffic court, so I was kind of nervous, right? And then um, I found the most comfortable seat in the whole courtroom, you know, way in the back. And then, um, and you know how before uh, the judge um, comes into the room, you have this, um, um, I guess, a court clerk, I don't know how you call them. And then, uh, so she came out, you know, with a very um, stern, and mean voice, and then uh, she's going through all the rules. You know, you're not supposed to talk, turn off your cell phone unless, you know, you want to lose them for the next three hours. Don't argue with the judge. And then, uh, and then in the end, she says something that made me feel like it's gonna be a waste of time for the rest of my time, you know, in the courtroom. She said, if you get the red light ticket, don't ask the judge to lower the fine because the law has changed and he can't do that for you anymore. You have to pay for it. And then at that time, I, I'm just like, uh, what am I doing here? You know. And then after that, uh, there's some question, uh, uh, questions and answers. And finally, the judge comes in. And I'm expecting this um, really, um, I guess, authoritative figure, you know, someone with a low voice and um, a lot of beard and, you know, looking really, really mean. And, you know, the judge comes in, uh, he's got a beard, really big beard, and then, uh, but he's actually pretty nice. The first thing he comes in, he starts cracking jokes with the people in this room, right? And then, um, and then people are, you know, uh, cracking up, they're laughing, and then, um, and then well, the clerk, you know, she, she tried to tell people to be quiet, because <laughs> they were in the session, you know? But then when it's the judge, Cracking out jokes. There's nothing. There's nothing she can do. You know, <laughs> it was so funny. And then uh, there was this gal, uh, a college girl. Uh, she, I, I guess she uh, didn't stop. I forgot what the thing is. Either speeding or she forgot to stop at the stop sign. And she pleaded guilty. Okay. And then she said, uh, "I plead guilty. Can I?" pay the fine with uh, community service. And then, um, uh, you know what the judge said? He said, did you learn from this lesson? And then she said, yeah. Do you feel responsible for what you did? And then she said, yeah. Did you know that you don't have to plead guilty if you learn your lesson? And she said, really? And then, uh, and then finally the judge said, you know, you learned your lesson. Uh, I see that you have a really good uh, driving record. You know, you're dismissed. And then she's just totally in awe. She's just, you know, her, her jaw just dropped. You know, what, what just happened? You know, is this real? And, and that day it hit me. You know how sometimes uh, when we read through uh, the scripture, right now we're in uh, Leviticus, well, in addition to Acts. You guys remember to read Leviticus, right? It's also part of this week's reading plan. Yeah, Leviticus, third book in the Bible. You guys look like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know, go back to uh, page 75, you know, uh, and read again. And it just hit me, you know, sometimes when we read 
um, when we learn about the regulations, the laws, the sins that we committed, the trespasses, and when we meet the judge, we, we come with a, a really a, a huge fear. We're expecting um, a stick. We're expecting to be punished. But a lot of times what we find is uh, Christ, the judge, the king, he came not with uh, a stick, but with a candy bar. He's like, you know what? I know what you did. Uh, I know you feel bad. And I know that you're trusting me now. So it's all okay. It's all forgiven now. You know, and... Um, um, and now you're probably wondering, you know, what does that have to do with uh, today's sermon? You know, it doesn't, but I just want to share something with you. Um, I, if uh, my conversation with uh, Emily, my wife, last night is any indication, by the end of the sermon, I expect two different responses. Okay. Most of you will feel sleepy right about now. You'll probably uh, have your eyes half shut, you know, throughout the uh, throughout the sermon. The other ones, you know, the ones who are sitting, uh, you know, the front row or second row, you'll be really polite, okay? You'll keep your eyes open, <laughs> but then you'll be like, whoa, you know, what's going on? What just happened? <clears throat> but I feel like I really want to talk about uh, today's passage because um, I feel really excited, you know, when, when I learned that, you know, this passage, this chapter is part of this week's reading. And then, uh, it started out with a very simple idea. I just want to talk about the tabernacle. And then um, the more I uh, research, the more I study, the more I prepare for, for uh, today's sermon, it, it kind of evolves into a retreat. You know, it's like a three-part series. You know, it's, it started from a 15-minute um, sermon illustration into, a, I don't know, a three-hour seminary class. So hopefully you'll just um, uh, bear with me. Speaking of uh, Leviticus, um, I, I am um, convinced and um, challenged at the same time that um, it's usually not your, um, I, I guess, a disciple's favorite book. You know, there are 66 books in, in the Bible. And then, uh, just by show of hands, I'm just wondering if anyone have Leviticus as their favorite book in the Bible. Okay, cool. So, I guess my uh, conviction was right. And, and, and you just kind of start thinking about why that is. Why Leviticus strikes us as such an irrelevant, boring, dry book. Okay, I think there are three reasons. There are three... Uh, three uh, strikes, uh, you know, the, the book got, strike, got uh, struck out even before it reaches the, um, uh, the, the hitting area. Number one, Leviticus is not like Acts, Genesis, or uh, Exodus with uh, a lot of interesting stories, you know, intriguing events, um, funny, funny and um, uh, amazing characters, you know, so it doesn't have the stories doesn't have the characters, it's not exciting enough, plus it's in the Old Testament, right? I mean, it's, it's the Old Testament, it doesn't apply anymore. So the, there goes uh, Leviticus, strike one, it's not exciting enough. In strike two, the book primarily deals with rituals, laws, regulations, you know, both for, uh, for the priest as well as lay people. But 
it doesn't apply today. You know, it's just um, it's it just it's just it, it's it's bygone. It, it's um, Christ came and then uh, he abolished the law. You know, so why are we supposed to read Leviticus anyways? Right, strike two, strike three. I think most importantly, the book deals with sin, and sin is a concept that's hard to grasp in the modern mind. You know, we live in a culture, in a society where we're trained to have high self-confidence, right? High self-esteem. We're told to repeat. I'm good enough, I'm okay, I'm not a bad person, you know, and then everybody's good, okay? And then, and then in the sense that we cannot make mistakes and we cannot commit sin, so there's nothing we can do wrong. In, um, um, in the book, because of that, uh, we're also taught that uh, God is a loving God, right? We're expecting a God to come and eradicate our sin, right? And that eradicate our uh, sin complex. We're expecting a God to come and just show us love and not discipline and not judgment. And then uh, in the book of Leviticus, you, you, you read about all the uh, sacrifices, all the um, animals, you know, being killed, all the blood, you know, it's just too violent, you know, it's not for me. And it deals with sin. But the concept of sin is so important, especially for us as believers. You know, in uh, 1973, um, Dr. Carl Menninger, who is not a believer, and he wrote a book called uh, Whatever Became, uh, Whatever Became of Sin. You know, he, uh, Dr. Menninger is a psychiatrist, an uh, atheist psychiatrist, and he wrote, uh, and I quote, In all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword for, of prophets. It was a word once in everybody's mind, but now rarely, if ever, heard. Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, but is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, but has no one committed any sin? Where indeed did sin go and what became of it? You know, it's very interesting. Uh, Dr. Menninger, in his book, you know, who is uh, not a believer, talks about sin more than uh, a lot of us. Now, I want to kind of, for the next, you know, five, ten minutes, just kind of go over what are the possible ways that we read the book of Leviticus. Now, we'll kind of talk about some of these uh, in the previous sermons. And then um, maybe we can just go over them again and give you some examples. And hopefully from that, we can learn to see the book from a, in, in a very different light. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys heard of um, a practice done by saints of old. It's called the um, Lactio Divina. It's a Latin term. In English, it means a divine reading. You know, it kind of talks about two different ways. It's kind of like a process, you know, uh, but without going to the nitty details, kind of about, talks about two different layers of reading the Bible. Informational and formational. So when you read the Bible informationally, you're extracting data from the text. So when you read Leviticus, you read about the different offerings, burned, sacrifice, grain, peace, you know, uh, friendship offerings. You, you read about them, you read about how it's done, and then you stop there. Okay, you read about how to become clean from uh, uncleanness. You, learn, you read about how to be holy from unholiness through, uh, through the rituals. But it does not equal to an end point. If you stop right, right there, you risk being a legalist. You risk um, thinking that the book is boring. And then uh, eventually I, I, I'm convinced that it leads to an unbelief, a disbelief in the inspiration of God's word. Let me give you an example. When you read Leviticus, right, you see all the, all the rules on what to eat, what not to eat. One thing that may happen is you woke up in the morning you're gonna brush your teeth, but you can't use you, you can't use your toothbrush, right? I'm paraphrasing this in a way. You can't use your toothbrush because God, because God said you cannot mix different colors on the toothbrush. And then when you uh, get your toothpaste, you can use uh, the fancy one that you bought from um, from the supermarket. You know the one with uh, the three or four different colors, because God said you're not supposed to mix them together. And you're like, okay, fine, uh, let me uh, go downstairs, go to my kitchen and um, pour a pot of coffee. But you can't, because it's a special blend, right? You're supposed to keep pure. You can only have one type of coffee beans in your, in your pot, all right? And then you drive to work, you go to the supermarket. You cannot buy anything from aisle one to aisle 50. You can only go to that little kosher section with, uh, you know, the stuff that doesn't taste good. And also every day it's a battle against God. God told you to do this, not to that, and you feel like, oh man, you know, this sucks. You know, God's, God's out to uh, crap my style. This is not good. That's one, that may, you may end, end up in there if you only read the book for the information. And you may also end up in the way of the Pharisees. You come up with all the different methods to keep the law and then you start looking down on those who don't keep the law the way you do. Right? Um, I don't know if you guys know this. Do you guys know how the Pharisees pray? They woke up in the morning and they pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner. I'm not a woman. I'm not a Gentile. That's how they pray. Okay? You may end up in there if you read the book for its information. But if you read the book formationally as a starting point without all the data, you risk a different side of um, uh, problems. Be- because if you read the book without proper guidance, without all the data, you start putting, filling the blanks yourself. You start reading your ideas into the book. And then you may end up with uh, some really 
cookie interpretations. You know, or you may say something like, uh, "The book is, is written by man. You know, it's written by Moses. It's not from God." And then uh, I don't have to do any of these. And then uh, if the ancient Israelites actually believe and do all these things that further confirms that religion does more harm than good to my society. Okay. But if you combine these two together, you start reading informationally and end formationally as something totally different. You read a book as a um, Jew reads it. You know, as someone who wakes up in the morning and then he goes into the bathroom and looks at his uh, toothpaste and toothbrush and he thinks, God, thank you so much. I bought the stuff, uh, the type of toothbrush and toothpaste that you asked me to buy because it's a symbol of my deliverance from Egypt of my deliverance from slavery as my deliverance from sin. I'm going downstairs, I'm going to the kitchen, I'm going to brew a pot of pure kosher Starbucks coffee and it reminds me and there's only there's only this certain coffee bean that I can drink because that reminds me of the battle that you fought for me. So what happens is um, as you read through Leviticus and then you picture your life, uh, days of life in the light of Leviticus, you are reminded that everything you do, the shirt that you put on, the shoes that you wear, the car that you drive, God has something to say about it. And the reason that He has something to say about it is because He wants to remind you of who you are now and what He has done for you. And all of a sudden, when you read the book, it's like, oh man, God is not out to cramp my style. He's not just out to tell me what not to do because He doesn't want me to enjoy life. But on the other hand, the book is written because when I read it, it touches on everything in my life. It touches upon how I raise my kids, how I study, what things I can buy from the grocery store because everything reminds me of I'm a believer I'm a Christian I'm a disciple of Christ and everything is spiritual there's no division between the physical realm and the spiritual realm they are merged together and in a way in a very large way that's what the um, tabernacle is now this is a picture of um, what the camp looks like in, uh, in the wilderness. You guys finished Leviticus, right? It's before um, uh, you guys finished Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God told Israelites they're going to stay in the wilderness. And then um, this is what their camp is to look like. The tabernacle is in the middle and the 12 tribes around the um, around the tabernacle and all the flags of course in English and then uh, <laughs> so this is what a tabernacle looks like and why is this so important such as the book of Leviticus why is it so important to study tabernacle let me give you these reasons 
Reason number one. It's one of the most written subject in the entire Bible. If not the most written about subject. 50 chapters. God spent 50 chapters in the Bible on Leviticus, on the tabernacle. Now, uh, we kind of talked about this before too. You know, animal skin is very expensive back then. So, for whatever reason, God decided to put something on the parchment. You know, it must be really important. So, in the Bible, there are 50 chapters on tabernacle. Exodus has 13. Leviticus, the book we're reading through right now, has 18. Numbers has 13. Deuteronomy has 2. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews has four chapters. So a total of 50 chapters devoted to tabernacle. That's how important it is. Okay, It's kind of like uh, the book of Romans plus the two uh, Corinthians combined. Okay, 50 chapters. And number two, you probably read that in Exodus. God wanted the tabernacle to build in a very specific way. The colors, the material, the dimension, the rituals, um, the, the orientation uh, in relation to, uh, to the camp of uh, Israel. God has a lot to say about what the tabernacle should look like and what it represents. Okay, and what it represents. And the last thing, it's probably the most relevant to us in a way, because tabernacle is a physical representation of a heavenly entity. Now I'm gonna read a verse from uh, Revelation. It's in uh, Revelation 15:5. So in Revelation, Apostle John got a got a glimpse of what heaven looks like. You guys remember um, if you if you were. Uh, had read the book of Revelation before, he saw nations and tongues worshiping before God. Right? He saw the seven angels, the heavenly battle, uh, the, uh, the the Christ's you know uh, victory. He saw all these things happening in the heavenly realm. And then uh, in Revelation 15:5, he also saw this. And I quote: After this, I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant of the covenant law, and it was open. So, what happens here is, 3,500 years ago, when the Israelites are in the desert, God showed them a glimpse of what have, what heaven will look like when they reach there, and and the big part of what's going on in heaven is this tabernacle that you see in front of you. You may see different renderings uh, from different artists, but I'm telling you, when we die and go to heaven, we're going to see something like this. You know, and, and God put that here so we kind of have um, an idea, like a, a bridge between what happens on earth and what happens in heaven. Okay, So if you go into the details of tabernacle, um, Oh, so this is what it looks like. First, you got the entrance 
into the whole uh, the whole thing, the tabernacle. And right here, where you see the cows and um, the altar and the laver, that's the uh, the court of meeting or the sanctuary. That's where the congregations meet and worship God. And that's where the high priest sacrifice the animals and cleanse themselves um, in the laver. And then, um, so after this layer, this is the temple, or um, the tent of meeting, if you read the TNIV. In the tent of meeting, uh, you have the entrance where uh, you see number eight is. There's another veil, another curtain. And you go inside, there are two, two um, compartments, two rooms inside the, time, inside the temple. The first one outside here is called uh, the holy place. Okay, where you have the menorah, a symbol of uh, Jewish faith, and then um, and then and then there's another curtain dividing the holy place and what we usually render as the holy of holies or the most holy place. And inside the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the symbol of this is uh, when. Inside the Holy of Holies, only the high priest can go in. And the high, only the high priest can go in after he cleansed himself. Do you guys remember in the, in the Gospel when Jesus died, um, this veil, veil number three, was torn down. And the symbol of that, what the symbol of that is, do you guys remember in the Gospel? In the Old Testament, only the high priest can go in and only after he's cleansed but when Christ died and the veil is torn down everyone all the believers have free access to the Holy of Holies where God's presence is okay now um, inside the Holy of Holies or the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant now you also again see different rendering of the uh, of the ark. The ark is made by acacia wood. Okay, I don't know what kind of wood that is. Probably something very nice, acacia wood. And on top is a uh, gold, a pure gold plate, a cover. And on the cover, uh, you have two two uh, cherubims, two angels. Okay. And the cover, usually, if you read an older uh, translation of the Bible, it's called the mercy seat. Have you guys heard that term before, the mercy seat? No? If you read the TNIV, it's called the, uh, the atonement plate. While the atonement plate is a more literal translation, a more accurate translation, mercy seat just sounds so much nicer, right? And these are the two cherubims, um, angel beings with wings. Earlier, Matt led us in the song, Under the Shadow of Your Wings. That term appeared multiple times in the book of Psalms. I think you guys will read down Psalm 17. It's also in Psalm 17. And it's also in the book of uh, Hebrews. When the, um, when the authors wrote those, uh, wrote those Psalms, one image that we may have is, uh, you know how when uh, an eagle is uh, going to attack little chicks, you know, little chickens, um, what they do, naturally what the chicks do is uh, to hide under the, the mother hen's wings, right? And that's using the same imagery. 
when David wrote those psalms, he's, when he's looking for God's protection, when he's looking for uh, God's shelter, he's hiding under these wings, the shadow of these wings, where God's presence is. Right? You guys remember how when Moses went into the Holy of Holies and there's a smoke on top of the, um, uh, the ark? That's where God's presence is. You know, mercy seat and the wings speak of God's presence, God's shelter. And under the shadow of uh, God's wings is right here where David takes um, comfort and shelter and refuge. Inside the ark, there are three things. The Ten Commandments, the tablets that we read about in Exodus. A jar or a pot of manna, the food that Israel, Israel ate in the wilderness. And Aaron's staff that budded. Now, there are two things, two symbols that these, the contents represent. One is they represent God's provision, God's faithfulness. But more importantly, they represent man's rebellion. They represent man's rebellion. God puts symbols of man's rebellion inside the ark. The tablets. In Exodus, these are actually the second set. Well, these are not real, of course. But these are the second set of tablets. What happened to the first set? Moses broke them. Why? Yeah, he's only on the Almanac for like three days and people are already making idols for themselves. He broke the first set of tablets because he got so angry and God had made the second tablets, the symbol of men's rebellion. The manna. People were in the wilderness and they grumbled. God, why do you send us out here to die? My mind is just dying in Egypt where I... I have uh, meat and fish and drinks and everything, you know. Now, out here in the wilderness, I'm just going to die because I'm just going to starve and die. And God gave them manna, right? And then God gave them specific instructions on how to take the manna. The first six days, uh, first five days, you take as much as you can eat for that day. On day six, you take a portion for two days, right? And what do people do? They take more than what they can eat, right? a symbol of um, men's rebellion. Well, um, Aaron, Aaron's a staff. This is going to happen in the next book, in Numbers. When you read it, you realize, um, long story short, the 12 tribes of Israel is uh, rebelling against God. And God told them, hey, you know what? You guys are not listening to me. You guys think you have the same status as the, uh, the, the Levite priests. This is what's going to happen. There are 12 tribes among you. Each tribe bring a staff before me. And then the chosen staff, the, the people that I choose for myself, there's going to be um, um, leaves. The, the staff is going to sprout overnight. And what happens next morning is... Uh, of the 12 staffs, Aaron's not only sprouted, it, um, it budded, there's almonds growing on it. And the reason why this happens is because the 12, the 12 tribes rebel, rebel against God. So three symbols of men's rebellion. And you put the mercy seat, the atonement on top 
covering people's sinfulness and God's presence resides on top. Now, for those who, are, who haven't fallen asleep yet, this is where it gets uh, interesting, very exciting, well, for me at least. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Paul wrote that Jesus is that atonement plate. Jesus is that mercy seat. In Greek, this word is um, hilasterion, the atonement plate. And in Romans 3.25, Paul said, you know what? When you guys see the Ark of the Covenant, Christ is, is that mercy seat. He covers our sins. He covers our, our rebellion. And God's presence resides on top. I don't know. I, I, I think this is really exciting. You know, when a book that you read in the, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, um, in First Samuel you read about how, uh, you know, when it's taken before uh, the idol of Dagon, and then Dagon fell, you know, fell on his face, and he's like limbs and his, his head, you know, broke off before God's presence. It's more than a symbol. In the New Testament, when, when Paul wrote about wrote that commentary that Jesus is that mercy seat. Jesus is that atonement plate covering our sins. Now, these are um, kind of the um, um, prerequisites, kind of like the background information before we get into uh, Leviticus 16. Um, and we have uh, two more minutes to cover uh, 34 verses in chapter 16. <laughs> so this is what we're going to do. I know you guys have uh, this, this week's reading um, uh, before you. You're going to delve into it. You're going to read it some more. But given the information that we have today, I don't know if you guys know this before or maybe this is new to a lot of you. That new layer of gospel, that new layer of what Christ and what our heaven, what our faith have to do with Leviticus. Could you please go back and just spend 15 more minutes this week to read Leviticus 16 again. And next week, we'll finish the second half of the sermon. But I implore you to just, with this week's information, I'm going to put the, um, the sermon slides and I'm going to put the, uh, the references on, uh, on Facebook, online. With that, would you please go back and just read about why this book, the book on rituals and laws that may seem outdated, is still hugely relevant to us today. Okay, and next week when we come back, we'll finish the sermon, uh, we'll finish the class, and then we'll delve into the verses of uh, Leviticus 16. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Father, we um, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Uh, in your Bible, 
in the word that you breathe into, in the word that you inspired. There are no throwaway verses. And Father, uh, thank you for the beauty, the, um, the foreshadow of heaven that you show us in the book of um, Exodus and Leviticus. And thank you for um, Tabernacle that gives us a, uh, a physical representation, an image of something that we will see, that we will touch when we go to heaven. And Lord, um, it's something that we don't understand fully, Lord. Um, it's a book that's still mysterious to us, and we still have a lot of questions, Lord. So, Father, um, as we journey through the passage this week, Lord, uh, in Acts, in uh, Leviticus, in, uh, in the Psalms and Proverbs, Lord, help us to uh, connect the points, tie the knots together, Lord, and see how your gospel is on every page in the Bible. And we pray in your Holy Son's name. Amen. <laughs>